Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast with Dr. Lance Miller. Each week, we bring you interviews with the top minds in the orthodontic profession in order to heighten your expertise, boost your motivation, and raise your skills. Join us as we help doctors take their practices and their lives to the next level. And now, here's your host, Dr. Lance Miller. Welcome back to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast. I'm Dr. Lance Miller, and it's great to be with you after our summer hiatus. Uh, we had a wonderful summer. I was able to focus a little bit more on my family and on my practice. We did a lot of hiking in the White Mountains. We took a family vacation to Greece, which was excellent. And we also did very well in our practice and met all of our goals for the summer. So that's going along great. Just so that you guys know, the plan here is to release about a dozen or so more episodes before Christmas, before the end of the year. And I want to give a big shout out, a thank you to the sponsors of the podcast who have uh, supported this and really made this able to happen, taken a little bit of the workload off myself so that I can have some great people on board helping out with some of the behind the scenes things that go into the podcast. Uh, If you haven't already, check out our website, elevateorthopodcast.com. You'll be able to see an archive of old episodes as well as some blog posts. I'd also love if you could subscribe to our podcast in your podcast app, either on your iPhone or whatever app you're using. That way you won't miss any new episodes. And you can also join our Facebook group at Elevate Orthodontics Podcast. Uh, Again, feel free to tell your friends, shoot an email or a text to someone who you think might benefit from one of these episodes. I'd really appreciate that. This fall, I'm going to be going to a couple of orthodontic meetings. This weekend in Chicago, I'm going to a meeting sponsored by Ormco, and I'm really excited. So if any of you are going to be there, uh, that's great. We're going to be doing some podcast interviews there on site. I'm also going to be at NISO, the New England Society of Orthodontists meeting at Mohegan Sun Casino in Connecticut, and they have a wonderful lineup of speakers. So that's a weekend I'm really excited for. And then I'm going to be going to the Invisalign Summit with my wife in Las Vegas, a meeting I've never been to, and I'm excited to go, and I hear it's a good time, and hopefully learn something and connect with some friends and maybe some listeners of the podcast. So that's my plan for the fall here. Before we get into the episode, as we're wont to do on the podcast, I'm going to share a little tip of the week. And my tip of the week, something that's been on my mind recently, is that I think we have to be very careful with the type of input we allow into our lives. Specifically, what I'm talking about here is news and media. At one point in my life, I felt like I was incredibly up to date, and I really prided myself on spending a lot of time reading uh, newspapers, magazines, online. Uh, really, I felt like I was very conversant with anything that was in the news. And I guess I derived some sort of pride from that. But now I find that it's not as useful to me. And I find that it's a distraction. And if anything, the pace of the news media has increased to such a frenetic pace that I, I can't keep up with it, nor do I really want to. Having so much news and being overwhelmed with so much information didn't necessarily help me reach my goals. Uh, Sometimes I felt like it maybe increased my stress if there was something I was concerned with that I couldn't really do anything about. And I felt it was manipulative at times, the headlines and the uh, kind of hype of the news. And it was a constant fight to retain my impartiality and objectivity. Everyone always seemed to have an agenda. And that was one of the struggles. Now I think it's even more. We have Facebook feeds. We've got notifications on our phone. I, I see people sometimes that have news notifications on their phone and it just makes my skin crawl. Even email I find to be uh, overwhelming. So what's the answer to this? How can we pare down our media diet, specifically our news input, in a way that helps us focus and really reach our goals? For me anyway, I can't watch any news on television. I find that's the least useful and the most sensational 
I do read the newspaper probably about five minutes a day to get through our local paper, mainly because I'm looking for our patients and seeing what's going on in our community. There's not a lot of national news in our paper. And then I do read some selected websites and blogs, but I try to really limit, and I don't find that I'm as stressed out by it. There's things that I don't know about that are going on. I find that if they're important, eventually I do learn about them, and I'll read a longer-form article about them. If you do feel like you want to spend a little bit more time with the news, one magazine that I've subscribed to in the past that I really enjoy is The Economist. Uh, it's published weekly, and what I find is that the articles are a little bit more thoughtful. They're a little bit more processed and have had more time to digest, and, and the content there is a little bit better. And, you know, I just, I try to avoid all breaking news. I, I hate breaking news because the stories are often incomplete. They don't have all of the information. It's kind of announced at this very frantic sort of tone. And in the end, I find that I don't get a lot of benefit from that. So I prefer if I'm going to read something to read a couple days later to find out what's going on, whether it's one of these horrible shootings we're having, whether it's a political event, allow us some time to digest, and then I get a lot more out of it. In the 21st century, I think our attention is our most precious commodity, and so I think we have to be intentional about how we direct it. Try to consume your news media in a way that's productive, that's positive, and that really matches your priorities. We're going to get on to our interview today, but before we do that, a quick word from one of our sponsors. We are so happy that OrthoChats is one of our premier sponsors for the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. As you know, providing radical convenience to our patients is becoming a big priority. Online chat is now a basic customer service standard for practices across the country. More millennials are seeking orthodontic care for their kids and competition is growing, so getting to patients faster and stopping the shopping process is more important than ever. How many patients have you missed after you turn off your phone at 5 o'clock or before you start answering the phone in the morning? What about the weekend? OrthoChats is the world's leading online chat provider for orthodontic practices. They have a team of in-house smile specialists who provide a warm greeting to every potential patient at all hours of the day, 24-7, 365. OrthoChats makes sure that you never miss an opportunity to have a value-building conversation with a potential patient. With almost a million chats of experience, they are experts at collecting information from new patients and getting them connected with your practice. Stop wasting your marketing dollars by sending people to a website that is static and lifeless. Hire OrthoChats today to help capture new patients 24-7. Visit orthochats.com before the end of the month and mention Elevate Orthodontics for $200 off your startup. Thanks again to OrthoChats for your sponsorship of the podcast. Dr. Glenn Dubrock graduated from the Louisiana State University School of Dentistry. He completed a two-year residency program in orthodontics at LSU and graduated in 1991. After graduation, he opened a private practice of orthodontics in New Orleans. Dr. Dubrock worked on the board of directors of the New Orleans Dental Association for eight years, serving as president in 2003. He was general chairman of the 2004 Southern Association of Orthodontists annual session. He served as Louisiana's delegate to the American Association of Orthodontists House of Delegates for six years and as Louisiana's director to the Southern Association of Orthodontists Board of Directors for three years. Since 2007, he's been the secretary and treasurer of the LSU Orthodontic Alumni Foundation and local arrangements chairman for the Orthodontic Department's annual reunion. He's been a part-time faculty member in the LSU School of Dentistry Department of Orthodontics since 1996. In 2001, he was awarded diplomat status by the American Board of Orthodontics. He enjoys writing, public speaking, and political debates. He has been married to his wife, Bobby, for 29 years. Dr. Dubrock, welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. I know you're uh, going to a football game later today, so I appreciate you taking a little bit of time to uh, come on the show and, and talk with us. 
I'm excited to talk to you today, Lance. Thanks for having me as your guest. <laughs> I know LSU beat Miami uh, last week, so you guys must be pretty excited. Pleasantly surprised, yes. <laughs> good, good. All right. Well, I'm excited to have you on the show today. I know you uh, have retired from practice a few years ago. We're going to talk more about that here in the interview but I'd like to begin by talking a little bit about the practice that you had. I know from being in some Facebook groups with you that you had a somewhat different practice model than is usually promoted, and you kind of focused on having a, a lower volume, highly profitable practice. Can you tell us a little bit more about the practice that you started and ran for so many years and kind of what your philosophy was? Sure. So um, just a little bit of the history. Uh, I graduated, as you said, in 1991. There were no real practice opportunities jumping off the page at that time. My wife is a dental hygienist, and we were living off of her salary as a hygienist while I was a resident. So we talked about it and decided that we'd give it a go starting our own practice. So uh, I started a month after I graduated. I opened my own practice. I hired one assistant who served as both the front desk and my chair side assistant. After about three years, the practice was doing fairly well. And my wife and I talked about it and decided that it would be in our best financial and personal interest to have her more engaged in the practice. So she joined me on a part-time basis for a year just to see how that would work out. That worked really well. And so after the fourth year of practice, she came on as full-time. And so uh, she basically served all of the functions that you would ascribe to the front desk, scheduling, uh, treatment coordination, financial coordinator, et cetera. And then I had a full-time assistant that worked with me in the clinic. And that's how I practiced from 1995 until 2005. And then Hurricane Katrina occurred in 05, which sort of threw our practice life into some disarray. And when we were finally able to return to our practice, it was just Bobby and I, my wife. And uh, we were pretty much in survival mode at that point. And a year had gone by and we decided, okay, it's probably time for us to hire an assistant again and get back to our normal way of doing things. And we interviewed several people, just never could quite find the right fit with the right person. We talked about it. We had become extremely efficient at what we did. Uh, the division of responsibilities in the office was very clear and it was working quite fine. And so we just kept it that way and practiced until 2013 when we sold the practice and retired. That's kind of the summary. Was your goal to have a smaller practice, a lower volume practice, or did that just evolve organically over time? And was that kind of your personality? What was the thought behind that? Yeah, you know, we had during residency, we had visited various offices of faculty members, and I sort of knew what I liked and what I didn't like. And so I had always sort of envisioned a lower volume practice, although I don't think when I started out, I quite knew what that would eventually look like. Um, but it just kind of evolved that way. And when I graduated, I really had no clear concept of what an orthodontist could earn. It really wasn't so much about that as much as it was just do the best that you can do for people and build relationships and then run a smart business plan. And then whatever you earn, you'll be happy with. And I really had no idea that it could be quite as profitable as it actually was. You know, I think that this is a different model than is kind of commonly promoted. Certainly, uh, we don't hear as much about this, I think, in, in the meetings that we go to and the consultants that, that lecture and things like that. But you know, maybe make the case for it a little bit. What, what were the advantages for you? What did you enjoy about this? Obviously, you stuck with it for a number of years. And 
What were the things that you liked about this model? You know, I really enjoyed the pace. Uh, we saw on average 20 to 25 patients a day. I did pretty much everything myself. Uh, I did have an assistant, but I didn't really delegate much to the assistant. The assistant's role was just to keep me moving so that every patient was seen on time. One of the hallmarks of our practice was punctuality for appointments. And so that was something that I think helped promote our practice throughout the community was the fact that we would always be on time for patients and parents could plan their schedules around us, knowing that we weren't going to run them behind for a baseball practice and so forth. I enjoyed the, the time it allowed me to build relationships with patients, which I think translated into better referral patterns from our own patients and from their general dentist because the patients would go back and speak to their general dentist about how we did business. And um, I think they recognized a difference for those who talked to other parents that were going to offices where it was a much larger volume and lots of, lots of staff running around. It was just different, not better, just different. Sure. So, you know, those were the aspects that I liked. I felt like we always left the office on time at the end of the day. There was no drama. Uh, I felt like I had good control of the quality of care I was providing. It was very important to me that I was proud of the work that I was doing. I just felt like for me that I could deliver the best quality care of which I was capable at that pace. And that if I got too, too busy, that something would have to give for me. I know that's not true for everyone, but for me it was. So those are the aspects that I think made that model attractive. For the last 10 years of my practice, my overhead averaged 21%. So, you know, it was an extremely profitable way to do business and very rewarding. Yeah. What about downsides? Were there things that thought at some point like, oh, this, there are some negatives to this? Yeah, I mean, sure. You know, when you're doing all the work yourself, that, has, that takes its toll on you. Um, you know, at, as I neared the end of my career, I was starting to feel a little bit more in the, in the lower back and a little bit on the neck. Um, but nothing unbearable. It was just something that I was having to adjust to. I think my eyesight was changing. And so I was changing my posture while working on patients and not realizing it. And, you know, then, of course, day to day, things fall on you. But I mean, of course, that's the same thing in a bigger practice, smaller practice. The responsibilities ultimately fall on the doctor. There was no one in the office that I could say, hey, this is this is your responsibility. It's either mine or it's, you know, the office managers and that's it. That's the only people you can go to. But that's, to me, a very minor downside of practicing that way. And of course, you know, being on your own, you know, when you go out of town for trips, the office shuts down. So there's the office stops being productive. But again, that's really, for me, that was a minor aspect of it. You threw out this number of 21% overhead. And I think that's something that probably got a lot of our listeners' attention. A lot of people probably haven't even heard of that before. And I think that's really neat that you kind of had that uh, ability to run a practice that was so profitable. And I think a lot of orthodontists focus on you know, the size of their practice, the number of starts or the number of locations or the number of staff. And I guess if that's important to you and that that's your goal, that's cool. Uh, that's totally fine. But at the end of the day, you know, obviously... We want to be able to take home from our practice, you know, what we need to support our family or, or nowadays to pay off student loans. So I, I think that that was a really cool aspect of your practice that, that most people I don't think is even possible. You know, for me, I, I was thinking about this in preparation for our interview, you know, in terms of each of us has to define for ourselves what we would consider success. 
And for me, I looked at it this way. I said, to be successful, I have to have an adequate supply of new patients coming into the office. And we ensured that by virtue of how we took care of people and the experience that they had in our office. So we never had to really worry about where that next referral was going to come from. So that was fortunate. Number two, you have to have a business that's profiting the income level that that meets your needs. And for each of us, that's different. Um, thirdly, I think I, for me, you have to be proud of the care that you're delivering for your patients. The way that I looked upon it is if Dr. Chatham, my mentor, was looking over my shoulder at the care that I was providing, would he be proud of what I was delivering? And that's the standard that I held myself to, the highest standards that our profession has. Fourth, I think you have to have quality of life within your practice. If you're meeting those other objectives, but every day you're going into the office, you're highly stressed and you go home feeling tired and miserable, that's not success. And for me, the volume that we were caring for allowed me to have a very peaceful existence within the practice. And then finally, you have to have a quality of life outside of your practice. And if your whole life becomes managing this monster business, are you really having the time to do the things outside of the the practice, outside of the business that give you fulfillment and enjoyment? And so for me, those were the five tenets. And that's what we strove for. And that's what we sought to achieve. Yeah, I love that. I think that's I think that's a great philosophy. It, it seems I think you're right. It seems like there's two types of kind of low overhead practices. I've talked with other people like you who have controlled expenses, systems in place to be very profitable on a lower volume. And then there's also I've seen very profitable practices that are very large where production kind of overwhelms all the fixed costs and profitability starts to go back up again. I think either system, you know, either way, there's a lot of efficiencies, there's a lot of systems in place. But as you mentioned, that large practice doctor is, is running around seeing maybe 100 or 150 patients a day. Yeah, and that's, that's really demanding. And that's fine. You know, there are certain personality types that handle that. You know, I have friends who handle that volume and it just doesn't seem to bother them at all. I, I'm just not built that way. Right. And so you have to know yourself. You really do. And, you know, I think at some point you have to look in the mirror and say, am I content with the way that I'm doing business? And if you're not, then you have to make changes uh, because it's only on you. And so, you know, we started working the way that we did and the volume was just the way that I wanted it. Um, I really didn't have any aspirations to be seeing 70, 80, 90 patients a day. And as long as I was meeting the goals that, that I set for ourselves, then there was really no reason to deviate from that. But as you mentioned, there's different successful ways to practice orthodontics. I think what's important from this conversation is that the way that I practice really doesn't receive a lot of attention because it's not terribly glamorous. But your listeners need to know that it can be as successful as any other practice model. Yeah, that's definitely why I'm excited to have you here uh, today talking about this. Let's talk a little bit about overhead. You know, what tips would you have for orthodontists? Is there low-hanging fruit that any orthodontist can apply to keep their overhead expenses in check? I mean, can a big practice have a low overhead? What thoughts do you have on that? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. You know, I mean, it's going to be different from region to region and what you have to pay employees in order to have reliable, trustworthy, committed, dedicated employees because we had such a small volume practice, we didn't need a large staff. So the biggest cost savings from overhead is the absence of the large staff. Uh, Outside of that, we did not do a terrible amount of external marketing. 
Uh, I think annually I may have spent about $1,200 a year on external marketing, which is basically just advertisements in journals and uh, not journals, but uh, like church bulletins and things like that. Because we relied predominantly on patient-to-patient -patient referral and general dentist-to-orthodontist referral, we just didn't have to spend a lot of money on external marketing. I did not have a big internet presence, just didn't spend the time and money on those kinds of things. In the way of equipment, you know, we had exactly what we needed to care for patients in the way of equipment. In terms of the things that you use daily, because I was the only one using the things, I was protecting my equipment. I wasn't throwing it around and dropping it. And sometimes we, we don't think about when staff's throwing things around, how fragile that stuff becomes. And now you know you're replacing a curing light or you're replacing a computer because it got dropped or things like that. And I, and I realize that every office is different in that regard. In terms of supplies, it's a lower volume. So it's just a function of the lower volume of patients you're seeing. I used a company that provided points for every bracket and band that we purchased. Consequently, most of my wires and auxiliary supplies were pretty much all picked up with the points. So that was a tremendous cost savings as well. You know, I'm not certainly not an expert when it comes to uh, office overhead and what you should and shouldn't be spending money on, but that's kind of the in a nutshell, the way that we dealt with it. Right. Yeah. I, like I said, I think that that is going to be a number that people are definitely going to remember from this podcast. You know, let's say there's a, a resident who's listening to this who says, man, I really am intrigued by this. It, it fits my personality. I like the thought of the pace. I like the thought of, uh, you know, the profitability, but I'm a little bit worried about the situation I'm in with my student loans. I know you teach residents at LSU and what are you hearing from them? And, and how do you think that this model, you know, could apply to someone with a large student loan balance? Yep. That's the big, the big problem right now is, is uh, that most of our residents are graduating with fairly sizable student loan balances. And well, number one, Starting their own practice is going to be almost impossible unless they have a significant other in their lives who can sustain the family's financial needs while they grow the practice. So that basically means that um, starting on their own is going to be pretty difficult. So that leaves either becoming an associate or uh, working for corporate or perhaps buying a practice. And then, of course, since most of the not maybe not most, but a lot of the practices out there are already much larger than what we're discussing here today, you know, they would have to go in and over time streamline things down to a smaller volume, which may be difficult to do. So, yeah, it's that's an important point. I understand, you know, the the concern about having to pay student loans and getting off to a strong financial start so that you can pay that down. However, that being said, you know, the numbers don't lie. And so if you can find a smaller practice that is fairly profitable, perhaps there are ways to make it even more profitable if you're willing to do more work yourself and not delegate as much to staff, then all of the time that the office is open, it's not as if you're paying staff to sit around during those uh, slow times. You're basically, you know, you're making your time more functional in the way of phrasing it. Uh, so that you're that much more profitable because you're not paying people to sit around and do nothing. Yeah, and I definitely are, you know, there definitely are orthodontists who haven't tied in an arch wire in a decade or more. And my staff gives me a hard time when I do some of the more 
day-to-day things that typically they do and they, they always tease me and make a big deal of it. You know, I think, <laughs> like you say, you have to be willing to do some of those things and uh, maybe adjust your clinical procedures a little bit so that you can, you can be more efficient and that you don't have to depend on a staff. You know, part of it too is something that I focused on certainly in the final decade, just because I was more aware of it perhaps, was the importance of starting treatment at the correct time, not putting braces on too soon just to get that case started. And I find that a lot of your profitability comes in to finishing treatment in the time that you predicted. And one of the things that interferes with the ability to do that is starting treatment too soon. So, um, you know, you, the numbers don't lie. If you tell a patient that their treatment's going to take a certain amount of time and you base a treatment fee upon that expectation, and then the treatment goes six months or a year later, that's lost profitability. Yeah. And it's not something that people look at a whole lot, but it's a big deal. Yeah. I love that. I think that's, I think that's fantastic advice. Let's switch gears here a little bit and talk about kind of personal financial management. I, you know, just because doctors figure out how to extract a high take-home pay from their practices, that doesn't mean obviously that they are quickly becoming financially independent. In fact, perhaps the opposite is more common. How did you manage to structure your your personal finances in a way to give you the flexibility to retire when you did? Right. So it was freshman year of dental school. There was a course called professional development, probably the one, maybe the only course in dental school that didn't have to do with teeth. (laughs) And um, we had a guest lecture in that freshman year who came in and spoke about the importance of paying yourself first and starting savings as early as you possibly can. And something about that lecture sort of resonated with me and I started researching things a little bit more. So that by the time I opened my own practice and I started earning a single dollar, the priority was always to start saving and investing immediately and learning to live without that income. And, you know, initially it was just a minor percentage of what we were earning. As the practice became more profitable, we didn't really necessarily inflate our lifestyle commensurate with the growth of the practice's profitability. We just saved and invested more and kind of maintained our lifestyle, maybe elevated a little bit, but maintained our lifestyle where we were content. And as a consequence of starting early, I I started my practice when I was 26, starting early with a savings and investment plan and continuously being disciplined to do that on a monthly basis, that nest egg eventually grew to the point that I became financially independent at 47. And we decided to continue working for two years after that. And then five days after my 49th birthday is when we sold the practice and retired. And it's really just a function of starting early, being committed to it, and almost it becoming an obsession at some point saying, gee, how much more can we put in there? And uh, that's kind of how it worked. So essentially, it was 20-something years of savings and investing and letting that grow and uh, being committed to that plan. Right, right. So you you would attribute it to the consistency and the starting early and the kind of ability to carve out a percentage of your income versus you know, your expertise in, in futures or commodities or, you know, Bitcoin or, or whatever it is, uh, were there types of investments that you felt were, were more successful or, or how did that play into your success? No, there, there were no gimmicks. It's pretty much, well, 
I've been invited to speak to the freshman dental class every year for the past six years, and I do tell them a story that makes their hair stand on edge, and that's that one of the stocks that I bought was Apple Computer when it was at about $50 a share. And about two and a half years later, Apple Computer had gone down to $20.50 a share, and I thought it stunk, so I sold it. Well, that <laughs> those 300 shares of Apple stock today, after all of the splits that took place, is worth $1.8 million. So that story always gets a few um, shrieks, but it's a true story. So no, <laughs> no, no gimmicks, um, just pretty much investing in mutual funds, index funds, doing it on a regular basis and letting it grow and um, not getting involved in any crazy investment ideas like pig farms or oil futures or things like that. Did you work with an investment advisor? In the beginning, I did not. And then as the portfolio grew and I started to realize I really don't know what I'm doing, I did hire someone who I retained for about 11 years. And then when I started to, to look at his performance against the benchmarks, net of fees, he really wasn't outperforming the stock market. And I think that's probably true for most advisors these days. They may outperform the market one or two years five if they're lucky, but they can't do it over the long term consistently. So that's when I decided to take over the reins myself and pretty much just focused on index funds that cover the whole domestic and international index funds that cover the entire spectrum of of, uh, investment opportunities. And I think that's a very wise way to go. I highly advise that your listeners read John Bogle's book on investing, Common Sense Investing. It's an excellent book. He started Vanguard. And it's a very easy read and very smart in the way of, you know, how to minimize expenses and maximize returns. I think the concept of financial independence, you know, is appealing to many people, even if they don't want to retire early. I think that everyone thinks that that's a good thing. But but you actually did make the decision to sell your practice when you were in a position to do so. How did you make that decision? What have you been doing since? Do you have any regrets or talk a little bit about the, the decision to retire at 49? Right. I think that's a real important point. You know, financial independence is the goal. Then ultimately, if you're just absolutely loving what you're doing, then work is optional, but you can continue to do it at the pace that you enjoy. I'll say two things in reference to my decision. Obviously, it's a very personal decision. Thought a lot about it. I absolutely loved being an orthodontist. Loved it. Loved all of the aspects of what we do as orthodontists. But as all of your listeners know, you know, owning a business, even if you're not an owner, just all of the things, all of the hats that we wear as orthodontists, dealing with all of the stuff that comes with practicing, be it unhappy patients, uh, patients wanting to know when their braces are coming off, staff that's unhappy with each other, the drama in the office, uh, managing the equipment, the supplies, all of that stuff is stressful, takes time out of your life, takes energy. And that's the part that I grew weary of. So it wasn't the clinical orthodontics that burned me out. It was just all of those other things. And I'm going to tell you listeners that I absolutely guarantee when they no longer have to do all of those things, they will not miss it. So that's number one. Number two, <laughs> number two is no matter how young you are or old you are, there is no guarantee of a tomorrow for any of us. There's no guarantee of good health and no guarantee of life. And I've seen far too many people practice into their mid and late 60s and even 70s. And then they finally retire 
and they either die or they are too physically limited to do all of the things they promised themselves they would do in retirement. And to me, that's kind of disappointing. So I just decided, you know what? I'm in a position to be able to walk away and not have to worry about setting an alarm clock anymore. And so, and I'm still healthy enough to travel the world and climb mountains and do, do the physical things that I would like to challenge myself to do that I'm going to do that. And, you know, if I miss it that badly, I could always go back in various ways, go back, whether it's teaching full time or whether it's even back in private practice. But candidly, after I've been out now five years, I see no chance whatsoever that I would be back in a private practice setting. So that's kind of what it is for me. Just those, those, that perspective is what drew me to make that decision. And no, there's not been a regret. People ask me all the time, <laughs> do you miss it? Do you regret it? The answer absolutely is no. Well, I mean, I, I applaud your ability to, to know yourself well enough to understand how to set up a practice that kind of meets your needs, to understand the time in your life that you're able to step away and to have the wherewithal financially to do it. I think those are great things. And that's one thing on the podcast that, that I really like to highlight is that, you know, as orthodontists, we're very fortunate and that we have the ability to kind of create our ideal lifestyle. And it's going to be different for every person. And if we can understand, you know, what it is that we really value and what means the most to us, I think in the profession of orthodox, we can find a way to make that happen for ourselves. That's so true. And, you know, now for me, the fulfillment and the joy that I got from being an orthodontist, I get from teaching. And I'm, I'm at LSU a half a day a week, every Wednesday morning. And then ever since I retired, I decided to start a business class for the LSU residents because they get so little exposure to business concepts. And I bring in guest speakers and I do a lot of classes myself during their lunchtime so that it doesn't take them out of the clinic. And once a month, I meet with them and we cover a business topic in as much detail as we can. And I realize it's not comprehensive, but it's better than nothing at all. And so that's the fulfillment that I get that I used to get from the practice. And outside of that, I've thrown myself into tons of volunteer activities with my high school alma mater. I'm still associated with the New Orleans Dental Conference. I've been on that committee for 26 years now. And so we plan an annual conference. There's lots of volunteer things that I've been able to throw myself into, but I don't punch a time clock. I can walk away from any of it whenever I want to. And, and that's a really nice position to be in. You know, my, my goal now is to remain useful and to try to help others reach their goals. That makes life fun. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that. Um, you mentioned briefly uh, Hurricane Katrina, and uh, you know that was 2005. How did that? I mean, obviously, it was a huge thing for the city. It affected your practice. It affected the the dental school. Maybe we can wrap up by by talking a little bit about what that experience was like and how you were able to kind of regroup following that tragedy. Yeah, I'd never want to do it again. Uh, it was rough. <laughs> You know, um, my practice was less than a mile from one of the major levee breaches. And so 60% of my patients had flooded homes. So after Katrina, we evacuated to originally to Mississippi. Then we eventually ended up in the middle part of Louisiana. And when I first was able to get back to my practice, get all of our patient files and everything we needed in order to be able to track down our patients. You know, that was probably about two and a half weeks before we were able to get back to the practice, the physical practice. And even though my practice was on the fourth floor of a building and didn't have flood uh, water in itself, 60% of my patients did. 
And so they were scattered. And by the time we found them all, they were in 27 different states in the country. So, wow. uh, you know, you, God forbid, your office burns to the ground. You lose your office, but you don't lose your community. In this case, we lost our community. So, you know, we had a lot of heart to heart conversations. Do we start over? Do we relocate? What do we do? But we decided to stick it out. We ended up basically crisscrossing the state of Louisiana for about five months to see our patients. All of the ones that were in Louisiana, we were able to see, basically borrow the office of an orthodontic colleague somewhere in the state. And uh, it would use their office on a day that they weren't using it. And that's how we saw the families that were somewhere in Louisiana. For the rest of the families, we just advised them to see an orthodontist wherever they were evacuated to until they returned to New Orleans. We were able to get back in our office about six months after the storm to resume operations there. And then the patients slowly began to trickle back. All in all, we probably lost, I estimate, around 30% of our active patients never returned to the city. So they ended up transferring somewhere else. Um, it was an interesting process because we had to do a lot of refunds for patients that had paid in full, but whose treatment we weren't going to complete. So we had to prorate their fees and refund the money. So it was it was a rather complicated process that I wouldn't wish upon anyone. Um, but the fact that we were a small practice actually enabled us to survive it better. We were mobile. Uh, we were able to take care of a lot of our patients who didn't know what they were going to do. It helped them tremendously because it was one less thing that parents had to worry about was, what am I going to do about my child's braces? But being mobile and being small allowed us to be nimble enough to survive that. It teaches you what you can tolerate and what you can survive. Yeah, it was an interesting time. And I, and I sympathize <laughs> with the folks in Houston who just went through pretty much a very similar scenario. Right. Those, these, are, these are things for which it's difficult to prepare. Yeah. I, 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 like you said, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. And uh, I think that's really great uh, that you were able to do that and, and that, that you had colleagues that opened their offices to you. And, you know, I think that would be something that would try anyone's patience. And the, the part that we talked about issuing refunds at a time when obviously the practice finances are probably already strained, that really kind of tests your uh, nerve as a business owner. Yeah. But, you know, you know, we bottom line was we had to do the right thing. And for those patients who were not going to be able to return for us to finish their care, you know, we felt like it was it was the appropriate thing to do. The fact that we didn't have a large staff that we still had to you know, would have had to pay their salaries while we were crisscrossing the state, you know, whether they had come with us or not. That was that was a blessing to not have to deal with that. Right. You know, it's just you can't possibly know what's coming your way. But that was one that uh, that certainly uh, taught us a lot about ourselves. Great. Well, Glenn, we're going to finish here with our uh, Elevate Express 8. We're going to have eight quick questions and get some rapid fire answers with you. Does that sound OK? Sounds great. All right. Uh, Glenn, what was your go-to treatment for full-step class twos? Headgear, class two elastics. What is your standard retention protocol? Uh, we would deliver an Essex the day after debon, and then a Hawley retainer about seven to 10 days later for the upper arch, bonded lower three to three. Who are your role models or mentors? Uh, Dr. Chatta, who just recently passed away at 86 years of age, department chairman of LSU Orthodontics, phenomenal individual, professionally and personally. Dr. Robert McMinn was a part-time faculty men member at LSU, 
big influence on me in terms of how to take care of people. And uh, of course, my parents. What's your favorite orthodontic product or instrument? Is there something you wouldn't want to practice without? Ooh, wow. What would I miss today? Hmm. That's a tough one. Can I think about that while you go to the next one? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. What's the best vacation you've ever taken? Best vacation? Uh, probably that would be from Paris to the beaches of Normandy. Cruise that we took uh, two years ago. Phenomenal. Great experience. Every American should go to the beaches of Normandy. What's one great book that you've read recently? Enough by John Bogle. Phenomenal book about not just investing, but also about life principles and life goals. Yeah, I think I read that. I think that's a great book. What bracket system uh, are you currently using in the clinic or did you use in your practice? Use 022 Omni Arch by GAC for most of my career. Twin bracket. And what's one area of orthodontics that you would like to learn more about? You know, I realize um, it's not something that I did a lot of. But in order for me to help the residents, I'd, I need to learn more about social media marketing and what orthodontists are doing to get themselves out there in a positive manner um, that translates into better referrals. Great. Well, Glenn, I want to thank you so much for coming uh, on the podcast and for sharing your uh, experience and uh, expertise with us. It's been a real treat. Thanks for having me, Lance. I appreciate it. If people want to get a hold of you or send you a follow-up question, what's the best way to do that? Facebook, email? Yeah, um, email would be fine. It's I-T-U-T-H at AOL.com, I-Tooth at AOL.com. Glenn, thank you again so much. It's, it's been a real pleasure, uh, and I look forward to seeing you again soon in person. Uh, thanks, Lance. I appreciate the opportunity, and uh, good luck to you. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ElevateOrthoPodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode. 